Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Owens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening. I have a, a little story slash plea out there for any people in the audience, if w- you'll indulge me. Absolutely. Lay it on me. So for the people that tend to use some sort of service to to communicate with people, like a mailing service or something like that. Or Matrix? No, specifically for mailing, right? Mail. Um, There's mail to Matrix. Okay, never mind. I'll start out now. Okay, well, you'll tell me, you tell me if this is, ends up being a problem. But when you use like a connection communication platform to kind of like hide your email, that may not be necessarily the case, like the main purpose of it, but you'll get an email from like connection service dot com or whatever, and it's from somebody and they're just using it to route or whatever. Mm. Please, please, please pay attention. Uh, if you are sending an email asking for return communique, that your service does not use no reply at whatever <laughs> service you're using. I, I had I received this email from uh, from someone in my community. I know them, so it's not spam. But it was like a hey, like let's let's get together, like send me some times so that you're free, sort of thing. Uh, but I looked at him like it's no reply at something. And so first of all, the first time I was just like, I know this guy knows a lot of people in the community. It's probably just a form thing. So I just kind of like let it slide. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, he's probably just sending out a mass mailer and that's, but then he sent me another uh, email this week and it was a one line addressing me by name. And, you know, the language was most likely not a form thing. And again, I went and looked at his email and it's no reply at, (laughs) at planningcenteronline.com. Like, how am I supposed to send you my time? So if, Ooh, if you so are it's using an, okay, those. hold on. So you you just opened up a can of worms. Okay, so if it's planning center, so then it's somebody from your church that's using planning center as a platform to send an email out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, the church has their own domain, but at this in this particular case, they're like, I don't know why the email is coming in from planning center online, but. That's but my point is still the same because I've 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 had this from other places. It just happens mm-hmm. to be this was the one that got my attention. Okay. Uh, just as the planning center administrator for a church, I would tell you that I think if you scroll to the bottom of that email, it should say something like you're receiving this communication because you're signed up with blah, 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 church in planning center, uh, contact the church at and then it should give like the organizational email. So like ours is hello at gfhope.org. But you're well, that. That would be wonderful, but this literally is Steve, and then one line, shoot me three or four times that we can connect, you know, sign, pastor, so-and-so. <laughs> the end. There is no three dots or, like, ellipsis oh. to show more stuff. That is the entirety of the email. That's too funny. So you'll have to go up and tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, I uh, I was going to send you a fax to reply to your email. That <laughs> <laughs> Schedule a phone call and we could get connected. 
Yeah, I'll sell, I'll send you a telegram. <laughs> like. That's great. Okay, so the PSA: if you're going to ask for a reply, make sure that people have a way to contact you back. That seems reasonable, Steve. Yeah, like don't use no reply at some domain. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready to get into some email? Absolutely. Let's help somebody else. First email comes in from Mars X-Ray. Mars X-Ray writes in and says, Hi, no one, Steve. Firstly, I love the show, and I'm thankful for your commitment to sharing all the good knowledge. I'm trying to build up my storage a bit without needing to buy a behemoth of a machine. I currently run a very old but trusty desktop tower computer running Xubuntu with three spinning Rust hard drives, a 500 gigabyte drive for the operating system, and two R1 terabyte size drive for general storage. Things like music and videos and family photos. I'm happily running Samba on this machine, and all other machines on my LAN are able to access the content stored on these two one terabyte drives. In essence, I've been running a poor man's NAS, and honestly served me pretty well for quite a number of years. However, the computer is getting long in the tooth. Plus, I'm about 75% or so of my capacity, so I'm thinking it's time to start swapping out those two drives for bigger ones before any sort of catastrophe happens. Instead of getting new drives for this old machine, I've been considering getting one of the small Intel NUCs or something similar to save on space and energy, and then some sort of external drive dock for the two drives that I'll be upgrading. Is it worth trying these NUCs with external docks for traditional drives, or should I just go all in on a NAS, something like a Synology? Years ago, NAS devices used to be somewhat underpowered, but perhaps things have changed. Or if we're going the NUC route and better is leveraging those kind of external docks, is it worth it? If you have any recommendations for brands or models to consider, thanks again. Keep up with the great show. Best regards, Mars X-Ray. So Steve, what would you do if you woke up in Mars's shoes and you were thinking to yourself, you know, I have a NAS, but it's really not the best NAS. There are so many questions. I had so many questions reading this email. <laughs> I wish that this was uh, someone who called in so we could have a dialogue. Mm. Um, the first thing, the very first thing that jumped out at me was, oh, uh, so my pastor, when he wants to, you know, instead of instead of saying something like "Good Lord," he'll say "Good night." And I was reading this as like <laughs> one terabyte drives. How old are these things? <laughs> How have they not fallen over at this point? You know, um, so I, I'm already afraid for your data just just based on the size of the drives mm. and how old they're likely are. But um, questions around what need you have for a NAS to be powerful? What are, what are you doing on a NAS that needs to be powerful? Um, and so that kind of dictates. So you should always start with requirements. If you think that you need some bit of power behind a NAS, why and from that, you should be able to answer your own question in terms of, uh, do I go with like an Atom-based, an ARM-based, an x86-based? Do I need, you know, is an i3 good enough? Can I use a Celeron? Do I need an i9? Like all of these sorts of questions are answered based on the requirement that you're trying to do. For my own NAS, I actually have um, the, what is it? It's an Intel 1541 uh, processor, which is, uh, it's a low powered, low, um, megahertz cores, but there's six of them and they just, they kind of like sip the power, but the NAS just has to be able to, to handle all of the bandwidth between the network, like the 10 gig network and the like shuffling files around. I'm not running any kind of crazy virtualization or anything on the NAS. So what are you, what are you running on your NAS that you think you need more power? 
start with uh, the end in mind. Yeah. So I, you know, part of the question is that I don't think there is anything um, called a poor man's nas. Mm, I agree. Except, except if you have gotten, say, like a Chromebook from 10 years ago that mm. you just repurposed and, you know, the thing is, you know, you've got a couple of discs hanging off a USB 2, not even a USB 3 port and stuff like that. That's kind of a poor man's nas. Like that thing might fall over on you. But aside from that, if all you're doing is is storing files, any reasonable computer will do. So I agree with that 100%. That was the first thing that jumped out to me is, what do you mean by poor man's NAS? That's the way NAS is said. Like, it's funny. If you think behind large companies or even small companies, vast majority of companies, you go into their IT room. If you think everything is off the box and perfectly up to spec and up to snub, uh, you'd be in for a surprise. There's plenty of IT rooms I've walked into and I'm like, wow, that's what was running that? That's interesting, right? So I, I think you kind of sell your your own solution short there a little bit. Like Steve said, if it's a functional computer and it works and it does what you need it to do, it's a perfect NAS. You definitely want to have a backup strategy in place. If, <laughs> if you have uh, two drives and you're storing stuff on both of those drives, that tells me that if either one of those drives dies, um, you're in trouble. Uh, so I would definitely, if you haven't already, before you get to upgrading the NAS, I might first start with getting a solid backup in place. And a solid backup would look something like you have the data in three places and preferably on two different mediums, which might look like maybe two different brands of hard drives between your, your backup server and maybe your offsite. But then past that, you know, coming back to this poor man's NAS idea. So if you think about it, an Ubuntu core, which is essentially what you have, you're going to have an easier time getting ZFS working on there than on something like, you know, Alma Linux or CentOS. It's not going to be a DKMS module. Oh, by the way, ZFS is now developed as OpenZFS, so that's following the Linux side. And then the BSD side is tracking the Linux side. So you're going to see all of the features and all of the stuff that's happening first on Linux side anyway. And then on top of that, Ubuntu is a really nice, easy place to get stuff set up and running. So I'll give a plug to Canonical for putting together the how-to guides on on, uh, on Ubuntu.com. If you go there and say, how do I set up Google? How do I set up ZFS on Ubuntu? They have these guides that will walk you through the process step-by-step, step, and they'll even give you things like it'll say, estimated time to run this 17 minutes. And then it'll say, you know, overview. We're going to install ZFS on Linux. And they walk you through every little step, and you understand exactly what you're doing, and you can get ZFS set up. They have the same thing for Samba. How do I set up Samba on, on Ubuntu. They'll walk you through setting up a Samba server, creating the user, creating the directory, that kind of stuff. So it's a really straightforward, easy way to get it uh, to get it up and running. And oh, by the way, because it's an Ubuntu base and ZFS, it's going to scale like crazy. You could absolutely go put a server like that inside of a, uh, inside of a large organization and have lots of users on it, and it, it would still work. You could still use those same underlying tools. Where it's going to kind of fall down for you is in the web UI for administration, right? So when we put storage appliances in for clients, I absolutely could go install Ubuntu on a base, and we could set that up and set all the shares up and set ZFS up, and it would technically it would work just fine. The problem is when the manager says, well, so how do I, when I, we hire new employees, how do we create users? And I say, well, no problem. You just uh, drop down to your PowerShell and SSH into the server, and then you're going to use your ads, hack D, 
like that's not going to work. That I would I would they would look at me, at me like I have six eyes. So telling people, well, you click on the bookmark that says file server and you log in with this username and password. Click on users. Click add. Make sure to add them to the staff group. There you go. They're you know manager. Add them to the manager group. That kind of thing. So that's where things like you know a true NAS come in, where you get that nice little web UI. And it will it, they'll do some some value add there. And then things like setting up ZFS uh, snapshots and replication, again, absolutely can do ZFS from the command line. You're not giving up anything from a technical standpoint. It's just when you're sending a technician out or when you're walking somebody through, it just is nicer to tell them, click on the little replication tab. Do you see replication tasks? Let's add one. We're going to pull from this server. We're going to push to that server, that kind of stuff. Um, so then when you get into, you say, you know, have NASA's become more powerful? Well, certainly they have. Everything has gotten more powerful. But one thing to consider is that there are companies that make cheap NASA's. And so if you're looking at things like Synology or if you're looking at things um, like QNAP, those are going to be, they're going to have a budget line. They're going to have a high end. But even on the high end, like it's it's still designed for small to medium businesses. You're still not looking at massive scale, right? When you start getting into massive scale, there are absolutely companies that do that. And those are when you start looking at companies like IX Systems or 45 Drives. These are companies that are going to provide you a tremendous amount of value and are going to be able to scale really, really high. Um, so you might check them out if you're looking for uh, for companies that make really powerful NASAs. Now, when when you're looking at specifics, you say, hey, I'm potentially looking at an Intel Nook. Okay, so you're right. It will be small and it will have a very low amount of power. But uh, the problem is how are you going to connect all those drives? Because if you do that from um, over USB, you're putting a pretty significant uh, speed limit. And if you... Connected over Thunderbolt, that might be an option. So you could potentially have like a Thunderbolt uh, dock that would allow you to uh, put. You'd have so they have like like a PCI a Thunderbolt dock, and then you could have some hard drives in inside of a uh, enclosure that has you know like a, a SATA card or something like that that goes into a PCI thing. You could potentially do something like that, but I think it would be an awful lot of tinkering to get that to work right. Um, so if I were you, I might start by seeing if you can get something like a Dell Optiplex and find something off of eBay. You could probably get one for a hundred or two hundred dollars. That's going to come with four uh, SATA uh, SATA slots that you're going to be able to put. 3.5 inch hard drives in, then a lot of them will even have like a USB port on header or right on the motherboard. And so you can plug flash storage in there and boot that way. Or so you could look for a computer that has, you could do like a three drive array with a, a, a RAID Z1 pool and then have your fourth slot set as like a little 120 gig SSD for the boot environment. And you could install TrueNAS and that would be a terrific file server. And then if you wanted to do what Steve's doing with uh, you know, 10 gig and, and a little bit more performance, you could add a bunch of RAM to the machine. You could add a caching drive and you could put like a little 10 gig NIC in there. Um, so I, th I think there's a lot of ways that you could cost effectively build a more powerful NAS. But I agree with Steve implicitly. You start with the end in mind, figure out what you're after, and then you can kind of work your way back. Yeah. So just to attack in there, um, I did exactly what Noah was suggesting. My NAS is an Ubuntu core specifically because I wanted ZFS. Um, and while you can do that on CentOS and RHEL, there's a bunch of DKMS stuff that, that can uh, 
cause some issues. And so this, I knew that I was going to grow this over time. So I specifically went with a, a motherboard that I could, that I knew was going to have a significant number of SATA slots. So like I'm, I'm looking right now, I've got two, four, six, eight, 10, wow. 11, 12. I have 12 drives in this uh, between. So I've got like uh, some SATA drive, some SSDs, one for, I have a storage pool that has, it's a, it's a striped mirror. So it's got two mirrors of two drives each. And then I've got a, a logs drive for that to offload out of that. Okay. Then I've got one for VM storage and these are one terabyte um, Samsung Evo drives that are, that are in a mirror together. And then I've got a RAID Z1 for a, like a giant, a giant pool. And that's got 30 something terabytes in it. But I knew I was going to grow into this. When I started this NAS, I had, I had four drives. Okay. And I knew that I was going to eventually grow into this. So I picked something that had 10 gig on the motherboard well before I had anything else <laughs> in my network that had 10 gig. Okay. Um, with, the, with the explicit idea that I'm eventually going to grow into this. So it was one of those things that I started off with like eight gigs of RAM and four disks, but I bought a good motherboard that I could grow into. And that kind of was the key for me to allow this, this, this particular system is fairly old now uh -huh. um, because I grew into the, grew into the motherboard. So now it's got 32 gigs of RAM. So I'm never going to like, I'm never going to put a huge VM workload on this or anything like that, mm -hmm. but it is this thing is low powered and it's just going to go until the super micro grow, gives out on me. So it's got the nice uh, IPMI and all mm. the rest of that sort of stuff that I didn't need when I started out. But man, <laughs> am I glad that I have it. You know, and I, I would. So I, w I guess I would add to that that, you know, when you go with brands like super micro, that's where you're going to get your best long-term value, right? Because that's a server-grade piece of equipment. Even if you put it in a consumer case, even if you don't have redundant power supplies, all that, it's built to be a server. It's not built to be a consumer desktop. And there's a difference there. Yep. So just, it all comes back to what what are you trying to get out of this? And mm. just try and think try and think through this before you make any kind of buying decision, aside from please, please, please go get some new drives and save your data because I feel like it's, you know, you'll blow on them one day and they'll die. <laughs> Our second email comes in from Mike. Mike writes in and says, I was listening to the episode today and I was getting myself caught up. Depending on your location of the country, Frontier uses a VLAN ID zero for DHCP packets. Q in Q and also Mac trying to an account. Um, so this he's talking, he's responding to an email about Frontier Fiber and PFSense in specific. And so he, he goes on to say, OpenSense had a fix and he links to the fix. That was a hot fix. The patch incorporated into FreeBSD 13.1 for the 802.1Q. This is the Q in Q. I run OpenSense and I have three options. One, you could use another firewall. Two, you could use Frontier's provided router in bridge mode. Three, you could use a layer three switch between the ONT and my OpenSense box. Option two and three, the QIQ fix is stripping the VLAN tag on the packets being routed to the OpenSense router and then letting me get a public IP address. I was also able to use three Dell laptops, two small office small home routers, one DDR WRT and one open WRT in their router to get a public IP directly from the ONT. As an aside, uh, with the router, Eris 
NVG, I think is a model. He says, from Frontier in bridge mode, I was able to connect to a two-port switch and then connect to Wi-Fi with six-plus devices at a time and get all public IPs on each device. So if I was to provide a summation of that email, Mike says you can pull multiple IPs from the ISP and that Frontier uses VLAN ID zero for handing out the DHCP public IP addresses. I wonder if they're using IPv6 because uh, in today's day and age, it's almost unheard of to be able to pull multiple, mm. let alone six IPs from from your provider. So funny story, Steve, you and I can both do that. Midco will let you pull up to 16 dynamic IPs on their network. IPv4. Really? Yep. If you pu- plug a switch into the back of your modem um, or I guess PSNs and just ask it for another one. Yeah, it will let you pull up to 16 IPs. And even then, that's pretty rare. It's pretty cool. And then the other part of that is even at the 16, it's not a limitation of Midco's not willing to hand out more. It's a limitation of the modems that they're issuing can only handle 16 IP addresses. And then uh, that's it. It can only cache that many ARP addresses. So So what happened to this IPv4 shortage that we heard about in the early aughts? (laughs) There was a fantastic uh, presentation at Self called Why IPv6 Will Never Be Adopted by the Alan Hicks. And my takeaway from that was he he outlined like three or four ways that we could have implemented IPv6 in a much more sane way. Like what if we just added another octet onto the front? So it would just be all zeros if you wanted to be backwards compatible. And then we could get into all of the other things without ever, you know, busting stuff like, you know, DHCP and DNS, which is in some ways completely broken on on uh, on on IPv6. It's a great talk. You should go listen to the uh, the original if you haven't heard it. But um, but yeah, uh, interesting information out of out of Frontier. I think that this is going to get more and more common. I did have a chance. I looked. The 7100 definitely has SFP ports, and they definitely work. So if you're looking for a router that you could just plug in, um, you could do that. Weirdly enough, Frontier is not the only one that is doing using VLANs to do weird networky stuff. Uh, PFSense does a similar thing in in the NetGate routers. They use uh, a they use a VLAN to bridge two ports together, which can cause all sorts of weirdness if you're not aware that that's how that's working. Our third and fourth email come in from James and David, respectively. We'll start with James. James, right? Sin and says, in the last episode, you were talking to somebody who had issues with a Z-Wave device. The Z-Wave device would stop working after a while and having to repair them, I've had the issue with my Hub Z1. And I ended up fixing the issue by upgrading the firmware of the Z-Wave chipset. From my understanding, with Z-Wave, most USB sticks will use the same chipset from Silicon Labs, which means you should be able to upgrade most USB sticks with the firmware downloaded from their website at silabs.com. However, you should be aware that updating the firmware on these chips are not super easy. You have to put them into a bootloader mode by grounding the bootloader pin. On the Hub Z1, there's a test pad and a TP28, which connects to the correct pin on the chip. Then you'll need to review the data sheet for the chipset in your USB stick to find the correct pin pad. A guide on updating the Hub Z1 is available at, and then he gives the link. So, Steve, I wanted to give you a moment here because you've actually done this process. You've upgraded the firmware on on a, on 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 a, on a Z-Wave stick. So, two questions for you. One is, do you think this relates to the problem the listener was having last week? And two, what say you on the process of updating firmware? Is it a difficult thing, or is it something that most geeks could handle? So, uh, I think that it's plausible. I mean, I I don't know enough about how firmware is put together, particularly these types of firmwares, to know 
whether or not this is actually the cause or whether mm. something else was the cause and this just masked it or, you know, somewhat made it go away. Okay. Because you, if you have something misfiring somewhere, it's similar to like an OS refresh, it might or might not fix the problem. Okay. So it seems plausible that it could. I have no idea. Mm. As for upgrading the firmware, it wasn't particularly difficult. Um, I run a kind of convoluted setup. So I, I have Home Assistant running inside of a VM, which means I'm doing a pass-through for my USB sticks. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I passed the USB sticks through. Then I logged into the Home Assistant uh, shell. I pulled down a Docker container to to work in so that it had all the utilities that I, I needed to do. Mm -hmm. And you basically run some commands and cross your fingers and hope that the VM doesn't reset or something while you're updating your firmware because it's always scary. Mm. But it's also like, a, I don't know, a $40 part. So at the end of the day, it's not, not the same thing as bricking your motherboard back in the day. Um, I didn't find it too hard. Uh, it is also possible in the future that this will be done right through the Home Assistant UI. The oh, most be nice. recent... The most recent updates from Home Assistant have enabled specifically Z-Wave devices to be updated, to have their firmware updated from Home Assistant itself. So the caveats there is that um, the Home Assistant project has to be... And their requirements are very minimal. You have to post your firmware somewhere to get it. So prefer GitHub, but they will take many other sources. Um, and if you're interested in that sort of stuff, there's a bunch of links in uh, in the most recent release uh, for Home Assistant. So it's one of those things that, that this is going to improve in the future if you're a Home Assistant user. Very cool. Well, that's good to know. I like the idea of op updating right from Home Assistant. kind of takes that whole FW update concept and rolls it right down the line. Yeah. So a related email came in. This comes in from David. David writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I listened to your podcast since partway through the pandemic, and I thought I would finally write in with a suggestion for one of your most recent callers. You had a caller who called into the show expressing his concerns about the AOTech Gen 5 Z-Wave stick completely dropping off the network. I have the same device on a USB extension, and I experience the same thing. I know a workaround to make this function again. I had the Hasio operating system on my VM on my Proxmox virtual host, and I passed through the Z-Wave stick to the Hasio VM. I noticed that the Z-Wave stick fails to connect and be recognized by the host OS when Proxmox reboots for updates. This does not occur when the Hasio VM reboots, only when the host is restarted. The AOTech Gen 5 stick has a physical button on it and an internal battery for operating while disconnected from the PC to walk around your house and pair your Z-Wave devices with close proximity with each device. You simply press the button on the USB stick, put the devices in pairing mode, and you can pair your Z-Wave devices at each device to eliminate the distance as a factor for pairing new devices. I believe that when the host reboots, a brief power blip sends the stick into this battery mode for pairing, and the process takes longer than the brief power blip, so the Z-Wave stick doesn't realize it's been reconnected to the PC host. When this happens, you can run dmessage and you can actually look at all of the devices with LSUSB. You'll not find the Z-Wave stick listed until the host is fully rebooted. If you unplug the Z-Wave stick, wait four seconds, then plug it back into the PC, everything goes back to 100% functionality. You'll see the devices listed in slash dev, dmessage and LSUSB, you'll see that Hasio now sees and will bring back the Z-Wave network. There's probably a better way to do this, 
just reset the USB port on the device that it's plugged into, but I've not had time lately to dedicate forming a remote CLI solution for this. This has been the only negative thing I can say about the AOTech Z-Wave controller. Everything else has been wonderful with this device. I've just learned that I do not perform updates that require a reboot unless I'm at home to unplug and replug the Z-Wave stick and have it recognized by the host. Thanks. Regards, David. What I you- can totally relate to that one. Um, I have a similar thing when I am rebooting or dealing with my home assistant setup. I've, I've been chatting with Noah, although I'm using KVM. And it's only with my it's only with my Zigbee stick. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. The Z Wave stick is perfectly fine. That Zigbee stick just <laughs> bites me every time I try and use it. Now yours yours is is you you have the Hub Z one, so doesn't that do both Zigbee and Z Wave? Yeah, but when I was troubleshooting my my Zigbee stuff early on, because I've mm-hmm. I've been plagued by Zigbee since I adopted it. I have had I'm on my fifth controller. Five, oh my goodness! Five different Zigbee controllers, thinking I've got to be doing something wrong, <laughs> or I've had a bum one. Like that's also part of the reason why I've been experienced with doing the firmware upgrades, because I've tried firmware upgrades and yada yada yada. So, anyways, um, as part of troubleshooting, I migrated off of the uh, the Zigbee side of the stick because. I had heard that like most of these problems go away if you're using uh, Zigbee to MQTT. Okay. But that project does not support this Zigbee implementation. Oh. So I went and got a Conbi, which is supported, and it didn't fix my problem. I, I think that it has evened out the devices dropping off the network, but because the stick itself now starts dropping off, mm. uh, you know, it kind of went moot. That's funny. Well, uh, a huge thanks for people writing in. I told the caller last week, I'm like, you know, we don't know the answer. Somebody out there is going to hear this and they're going to know. It sounds like David is in the exact same boat. And by the way, for the caller who called last week, we did, we did as, as promised, we did get you a Hub Z1. So it's sitting downstairs at Alta Speed Technologies. You can stop by at 1191 South Columbia Road and, and uh, give them your name at the front desk and they will have a stick for you. Let's go to the phones. 855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. David joins us from California with a question about our syncing from a Debian server. Welcome into the program, sir. Hey, uh, I enjoyed the show since show one, really. So I just, you know, I just want to say that. Yeah, thank um, you. The, um, yeah, so my problem is I have uh, a network set up. And I have the network from Frontier coming in on a router, and then I have another router attached to that. So most of what I'm doing in my home have set up is on the, I think it's a, uh, I don't want to say it's a Linux router. So most of it's on that. And the Frontier router is kind of just basically um, not used for, for much, except for I do have a Debian server on that router. Okay. And I'm trying to back up the Synology on the Linux router to the Debian that's on the Frontier router. And I can SSH to it from, from my Windows computer, from my Linux computer, from every computer on my network, except for, the, for some reason I can't get the Synology to connect to it and uh, transfer files. I was hoping we could put something in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let me start with this. So make sure I understand how you're set up. So you've got your internet coming in. It goes to a Frontier router. Then you have a double NAT. You've got a second router plugged into the Frontier router. So it's going from the WAN side of your Linksys router into the network side of the Frontier router. And there lies your second server. So now you have one file server on the Frontier router. You have another server on 
the Linksys router and you want them to talk together. Where is the Synology, uh, Linksys or the Frontier side? It's on the uh, Linksys side. Okay, and so the Frontier side has the Debian box. Right. Okay, well... So the short answer is, if you have a firewall rule created on your Linksys router, those two should absolutely be able to talk back and forth. You said you can SSH, but rsync isn't working? Right. And I haven't tried to rsync um, from, my, uh, from my, my laptop to the Debian. Um, I mean, I can SSH to everything, but I don't have the rsync on that. So... R-Sync is a separate is a separate package from SSH, and Steve is shaking his head. So I'm going to let him jump in here as well. I was just thinking, sure. like, um, if it was a network connectivity problem and you can SSH from one box to the other, then R-Sync will work because it uses the same port with the same protocol mm. mo because it tunnels over SSH. Mm -hmm. So the only thing that would block that is if one side or the other didn't have the rsync binary, but then you should get an error saying rsync unavailable or, or something similar to that. So it's unlikely to be a network connectivity issue if you can SSH between the two boxes. Like, so if you can make that connection from one server to the other specifically, because you have to test the path that you are actually trying to connect with. So connecting from your laptop or your desktop out to the Debian box is not a valid test. That just tells you that something can route that way. Mm. But you need to test from the device that you want to the other device on the remote end because you could have routing issues, you could have a path issue, like there's all kinds of things that it could be. So you need to do as close to a like-to-like -like test as you can get. Is rsync enabled by okay. default on a Synology? It isn't, you have to actually enable it in the uh, control set. And I don't know if there's a way to test it, but every time I try to connect it, it, it doesn't quite work. Well, here's I it, here's one thing you could do. It's sort of working around the problem. It's not really addressing your problem. So I guess ha understand that up front. But one thing a person could do is you could take a third box and mount the Samba share from Synology, mount the share from the Debian box, and then just rsync between those two directories. Okay, that's possibility. If okay, you know, part of you know, like Steve was saying, you can't, if you you know, it the the part of the problem with troubleshooting the Synology side is going to be if it doesn't work, like you know, in a CentOS box or an Oma box or a Debian box or an Ubuntu box, you could go in, you could look at logs, you could try installing different packages. Like there's 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 a troubleshooting path. Really, it's with Synology, it's going to be if you've turned the service on and it says it's there, it should work. If it doesn't work, uh, you contact Synology support. Or like you, like I say, I would probably just move it to a known quantity. I know rsync will work fine on an Ubuntu box. Why not just get the remote paths mounted on this box, and then I can do what I want with it? How much uh, information are you right. moving around? Uh, it's really just a folder uh, uh, full of music that I want to. Uh, I'm trying to copy over the RV. I mean, technically, I could just use it USB, but I'm trying to. I, I like to keep them in sync if possible. Sure. So that, that's not super huge. So the problem with what Noah would be suggesting would be, it would be very slow mm. because the bandwidth, it's basically trying to do double work on the same network card. Unless you had two network cards in the box, one connecting out to each host. But otherwise it'd be using a single network 
card to both send and receive the data and that that will be slow but for for a music collection i don't see that being a huge problem well i guess if you had terabytes of music <laughs> you know giant flak files or something but that's a, that's a good you, workaround. Either you know a way to do, do you, maybe you know if there's a way to, to, uh, to test the SFH um, in uh, terminology, uh, other than just you know, turning it on. I mean, I don't know if there's a terminal app or I don't know if you guys have experience in terminology. So the way that I would troubleshoot this would be from the outside in. So I would go to the Debian box, like, like Noah was suggesting, where you can install something, and try and connect to the port. So there's a bunch of ways that you can do that. You can, there's specific commands you can run that'll just literally fire a packet into the port. And if, if it works, you'll get no response. And if it's, if it's blocked, it'll tell you, hey, I had a problem. You can just try running SSH from your Debian box into the Synology box, uh, which would probably be the simplest okay. thing. So just looking at Synology's uh, knowledge base, uh, it appears that the steps are enable the rsync service. It sounds like you've done that. But the second thing you need to do is you need to create a user and grant the user uh, privileges to run, or excuse me, grant the rsync user privileges to run rsync. Um, have you done anything with permissions? You know, I may not have done the permissions. I would bet you... I would bet you money. Here's what I'm going to do, uh, David. I'm going to put a link for you in the show notes. I'll have a link for you with the knowledge uh, base article from Synology that walks uh, walks through that step by step process. The other thing I'm going to point out to you: Do you have Mumble available? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. If you're willing to install Mumble, uh, you can connect to mumble.mindrip1.com. Uh, it's available on the on the Mindrip1 site as well. I'll put it in the show notes for you as well. But there's a bunch of folks that, uh, very techie folks that hang out in there all the time. And they're sending me messages right now saying, hey, if he jumps in Mumble, we'll sit down and, and work with them one-on-one and, and, and see if we can get the rsync thing solved. So if you uh, want some troubleshooting, some one-on-one troubleshooting help, there's a whole bunch of people that are waiting to do that with you. Um, you just have to install Mumble and get connected. Okay, sounds good. All right, give us a call back. Let me know. I would love to know if that works out for you, what you end up doing, and and how you solve the problem. Let me know. Again, live at asknoahshow.com. Our fifth email comes in from Kevin. Kevin writes in and says, Hey, Noah and Steve, I know you guys are all about open source and whatnot. Have you ever considered doing something along the lines of value for value like the guys over at Jupiter Broadcasting are doing? I wanted to boost your show the other day on Fountain, but noticed you weren't set up for that yet. And then he gives a link to Jupiter Broadcasting's boost, and it says, they explain it all. Uh, Sat, Podcasting 2.0 goodies, hope that to see you on the Lightning Network soon. Kevin. So I, I would start with this. First of all, thanks for writing in. And second of all, I really appreciate the fact that technologies like this exist. I think it's fantastic that... There is open source cryptocurrency network that allows people to uh, monetize their podcast. I also think it's fantastic that it's separated from corporate interests. So you become beholden only to the listener, right? And so if listeners uh, like your content and like what you're doing, when you support Chris and Jupiter Broadcasting, uh, the guys over there and say, hey, I'm going to. I'm going to give them, I'm going to boost what they're doing. You're supporting them directly. And then that makes them beholden to you. So I like the idea in theory. The, 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 the problem for me is when I put that line out 
in writing, if I put that line out, we, we want to serve the audience. I am here for you to provide a service for you, to help you and to, to, to guide you. How can I do that? How can I serve you? And does, would something like boost move the needle forward? Well, so for one, you'll notice like we have not monetized the show. We don't have ads and it's not because, uh, you know, VPS providers and others have not approached us and asked about it. But I've been reluctant to do anything with the sponsorship for two reasons. One is I badly don't want the sponsor to be able to regulate what I say on the air. If I don't like it, if I like a product one day and don't like it the next day, which has happened frequently through the five year span of the show, I just want to be able to do that. And so once you involve a sponsor, that changes the way that that has to be presented. And it makes me nervous. Second of all, both Steve and I do this as a way to pay it forward. And so you know, if Steve was getting his hourly wage, well, first of all, we wouldn't be able to afford Steve. Second of all, if you were, if I was, if if, if you were paying me the the, the money that I, I I pay at Alta Speed to answer technical questions, like it would become a very expensive show. So I've never looked for money, and that wasn't why I got into it in the first place. The whole idea was to put something into the pot and taking it back out. And that stems from the little 9, 10, 11, and 12-year-old me who went to his parents and said, Mom and Dad, I'm in uh, school, and they have this computer lab, and in there is, you know, Photoshop and, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, whatever it was back in the day, Final Cut Pro. And I want to edit videos on my computer. That sounds really cool. Can I have one of these things? Well, how much would that cost, son? Well, it would be, you know, $1,000 for a laptop and then another $800 for the software license. Yeah, that's funny. Go pound sand, right? The only reason that I was able to play with networking equipment and servers and virtualization and all of that stuff is because there were people in the open source world that paid it forward first, that gave before they ever asked for anything, and in a lot of cases never asked for anything at all. The, we fundamentally owe the internet to people saying, here's HTML, here's the way that the web is going to work, and everybody can just use it. And if we would all try to silo off and try to make sure that we can monetize it and do all those things, I will question if we would wind up where we were today. So my goal for the show is both Steve and I make a living on the foundational knowledge that other people have laid out for us. And it's allowed us to learn and grow and become experts in that field. And now this is an opportunity for us to put back into the pot. So I like the concept of lightning. I like the idea of boosting. I don't think it's right for the show as it sits today, because when I ask how when I can ask, how can I be more beholden to you, the listener? Your listenership already drives the the show, right? It's the, it's in the intro of the show. It puts you in the driver's seat. You get to ask what you want to ask. We ask you every week. Send feedback to live at asknoahshow.com. Tell us what topics you're interested in, and then we will respond and we'll help you understand those things. If I attached a dollar amount to doing that, it really wouldn't change because we're always going to evaluate the feedback of the show based on what serves the listener. We read that and hey, there's going to be more than one person that thinks about that. We're going to talk about that. We're going to spend some significant time. Hey, that's one. I'm just going to reply to the person and say, here's how you can fix it because that wouldn't apply to a large people. And I wouldn't change that model if just because there was a paycheck attached to it. So I just today, I don't think it's a good fit, but I don't to be clear. Any monetary stuff just isn't really a good fit. This is here to serve you, the listener. That's the purpose of it. And I'm and yeah, I'm, I'm married to doing it that way. So someday maybe that changes. 
But for right now, that's the boat we're in. We're late to the Linux Newswire with JT standing by with the latest Linux news headlines. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. A stealthy new Linux malware known as Shakitiga has been discovered infecting computers and IoT devices with additional payloads. The malware exploits vulnerabilities to elevate its privileges, add persistence on the host via crontab, and eventually launch a cryptocurrency miner on infected devices. Shakitiga is quite stealthy, managing to evade antivirus detection using a polymorphic encoder that makes static signature-based detection impossible. The Linux Foundation has announced the Open Wallet Foundation to develop interoperable digital wallets. VMware engineers have tested the Linux kernel's fix for the RETLEAD speculative execution bug and report that it can impact compute performance by up to 70%. The CVE program, run by MITRE, is expanding its partnership with Red Hat for the CVE program for open source. Red Hat is now designated as a root for any open source organization that chooses Red Hat as the root. However, organizations are free to choose another root if it suits them better. A Firefox and Firefox-based browser extension called GNU LibreJS is intended to automatically block non-free, non-trivial JavaScript. It operates similar to NoScript, but makes the distinction between non-free, non-trivial JavaScript and free or trivial JavaScript. Lightbend Inc., the creator of the popular application development platform Akka, has announced it's changing the software licensing model to ensure that its biggest users contribute more to its development. Lightbend is stepping away from open source with enterprise customers to be charged between $2,000 and $3,000 per core. Users will get no additional features, enhancements, security updates, or bug fixes for existing versions. Akka instead will be licensed under the BSL, Business Source License, starting with Akka version 2.7, which lands in October. This is the same license used by Couchbase, MariahDB, and Cockroach Labs. Altair has announced that Altair Radio S, their finite element analysis dynamic simulation code, is now available as an open source technology under the new name OpenRadio SS. Somnium Space, a virtual reality world that is built on the Ethereum blockchain, has partnered with Virgineers Incorporated, a provider of next generation virtual and mixed reality pilot training systems, and 3D printed manufacturer Prusa Research to further enhance the development of a new cutting-edge open-source VR headset. Meta is shifting the management of PyTorch, a deep learning framework developed by Meta subsidiary Facebook, to the newly formed PyTorch Foundation, which will in turn be under the oversight of the Linux Foundation. Meta has also open-sourced Flashlight, its fast and flexible machine learning toolkit in C++. Bitwarden has announced that it has secured a $100 million investment into the company. Blender has released its latest version 3.3 as an LTS. LibreOffice 7.3.6 has been released. OpenWRT 22.03 is out. Distrobox 1.4 has been released. And the Debian project has released Debian 11.5 and Debian 10.13 as the newest versions available. Thanks, JT. You'll hear his newscast the bottom of the show. We try to get that about halfway through as close as we can. Sometimes your feedback takes precedence and we just don't get to it. Uh, last piece of feedback I want to go to is from Mark. Mark writes in with a response to drones last week, and he says, in practice, drone violations move only in one direction, which is against the victim. If a drone is flying over your house, keep in mind that you don't own the airspace over your house. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. You can't call the local police because they don't have jurisdiction in that space. That space belongs to the FAA. 
So what do you escalate to? Practically, can you really do that? Do you have their phone number on speed dial? Does it do any good to contact a local office if they're 300 miles away? How long does it take for the FAA to show up? Where's their enforcement bureau? How does that work? Now let's explore your response to a drone over your property. First, be aware that you are probably being recorded and the video is likely being stored on a remote device. So anything that you do is going to be recorded as evidence. What happens if you shoot a drone? Shooting at an aircraft in the US, even a non-manned aircraft, is a federal offense. If there's any video evidence of you shooting at an aircraft, you better believe the FAA will fly from DC to your house, knock on your door, and investigate. Exploring nuisance laws, stalking laws, and disruption of peace laws with the local police is probably your best approach. Many reactionary opinions have been tried, water canyons, signal jamming, drone-to-drone combat, and even training birds to prey to take out the drones. All of these approaches have problems both financially and legally. We live in a strange place in the drone timeline where the balance of power tips towards the pilots of the drones. Reform is coming, but in the meantime, don't allow the assumption of rights to make you be a criminal in the court of law. I hope this keeps someone out of hot water. So I think he did a really good job, Steve, of like calling us out without calling us out. Don't you think? Yeah. uh, Although I think that there is now I'm not a lawyer, but Hmm. I I strongly believe that there are privacy laws surrounding the ability for you to just videotape somebody. Okay. Especially like you can't just go and point a camera at somebody's house, for example. So I know for sure that the local police will come if someone complains and you've got your ring camera pointed directly across the 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 way at somebody else's door. Like that's a violation of their privacy. So there there are some laws that may govern this, at least in the U.S. and Canada. Um, so I would... You may not be, I could see them saying, well, you can't shoot down this thing because that's the destruction of somebody else's property, blah, Mm. blah, blah. But if they're recording, they're flying something over my property and Mm -hmm. recording me in my backyard, I'm pretty sure there's some some sort of legal recourse for that. Um, So so. Linux Ninja in the chat room says, you don't over the airspace over your house? Question mark. Who said? Yes, you do. Airspace below 500 feet is under your control. The court has cases about air, airspace and a long court history. I was simply reviewing the cases a few weeks ago. So it sounds like there might be a little discrepancy in there. And maybe under the right circumstances, a person could potentially say, hey, if it's below this altitude, it's fair game. It also depends on local laws, right? Because the kind of, usually the way it works is what is the federal law? What is your state law? What are your local laws? Like mm. that's kind of the way that laws fall through. So if the FAA is like you're within the FAA's tolerance, but then your state says, well, you can't fly like you can't fly this in a park or over mm. a bathing area or whatever, like those kind of take precedence. So you might end up living in a place, uh, let's say a more liberally minded place that might say, you know what? They probably can take down a drone if it flies over your place. So, right. um, yeah, I'm not a lawyer. I would just say that. I don't think there is a blanket statement that we can go by here. Just, But it is definitely a thank you, Mark, for writing in because there's you definitely gave some food for thought, things I hadn't th- considered. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, th- I think you did an extraordinarily elegant job of, of saying a lot without saying a lot. So I, I appreciate that. I would say that I think you and I live in, in very different worlds from a standpoint that 
The University of North Dakota is one of the top aviation schools in the country, and as such, there is a ton of research that is happening here with UAVs to include they have an entire testing facility like North or yeah, North of town. So I suspect that in, you know, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, you are, you know, somebody's flying a drone. That's not nearly as understandable as I see a drone over my house. I have to start asking questions like, is it just a random pilot or is this part of some program or is it part of some state thing or like UPD I found out the other week has, uh, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles that they use for surveillance. So like, I don't know what it is. I don't know who sent the drone up and I don't know why it's over my house. Yeah. So I'm, I ultimately, I think it boils down to you probably should respect. There should be more respect on both sides. Like you can't just go around breaking other people's stuff. But at the same time, do you really want like cameras flying around in your mm. neighborhood? Yeah. <laughs> so. No, you don't. And, and, you know, we're not going to have enough time to dig into this with the full justice that it deserves. So maybe it'll be a future episode. But the reality is that, you know, there is a school in Sydney, Australia, where students are asked to give their fingerprint and how uh, to be entered into a system so that they can use the restroom. And as technology continues to outpace our legal system, what is the exact response to that? Because we have the technology to fly cameras around the neighborhood, you and I don't want that. But there's a whole lot of people that have ring doorbells that think that that would be just dandy. Yeah. What does a society do? Where do you draw that line? Yep. It's a complicated process. That's for sure. I mean, I would say you draw that line around my property. Like, you cross over to my backyard, that's when stuff starts coming up towards the drone. Sorry. Yeah, I just, you know, I don't know. Things like the Castle Doctrine exist. Mm. And... uh <laughs> I feel like that should also apply to things entering your your airspace, such as it is. Right? The last 500 feet. I'm going to talk to a friend of mine who's a pilot and see if he has anything to add to that or well, what his take on that. Hey, the music in our ears, it means we're out of time. We appreciate you joining us for the episode we recorded every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can participate live in a interactive mumble room. You can call us on the phone. You can participate in our chat room at geeklab.ninja. Tons of ways to get involved. We would love to have your questions. So write those in at live at asknoshow.com. Let us know what we can do better. How can we serve you better? You don't even have to boost. You just get it for free. It's why we're here. It's a service we provide. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoshow.com. Have a great week.